I'd like to welcome you to the ministry of McCormick's Creek Church. We certainly hope that you will enjoy this selection. 17 through 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. We're talking about the revelation of God. And this is a particularly um, good lesson. I think theologically it, it just... God revealed himself in purpose. What is the purpose of God? Why did God come to this earth? Why did God give himself as a man to be crucified on a cross? Why did he leave the tomb empty? Why did he do what he has done? Why did he establish the church? You know, so God reveals himself in purpose. And let's, let's look at this. The second Corinthians, very familiar. 5:17 through 21 Therefore if any man be in Christ he is a new creature old things are passed away behold all things are become new and all things are of God that is a, a great passage right there and all things are of God everything that happens it's of God who hath reconciled us to himself himself rather by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry so he's laid in the hands of the church the ministry of reconciliation. So not only did he give us the opportunity to be reconciled to him, but he gave us the ministry of reconciliation so that we could see to it that others are reconciled to God. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us, again we see the us, the word of reconciliation. So we again, we see it, he, he, he reiterates it, that we have a ministry or a word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Turn and shake somebody's hand. Tell them that one of these days that they're going to be an old person too. And, and you may be seated. He will be. They're never going to be as tough as us. There we go. Yes, it's working real good. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. A man did a study on, um, it was a, an Internet study, on reconciliation after divorce. And, and what, he, he, what he found was, I suppose to some degree it's astonishing, to, but I, I also, uh, by looking at a world that is broken and full of broken homes and broken relationships and broken lives, that it shouldn't be too difficult to understand what he found out in this particular study because we can see, I think it's easy to look around us and see that reconciliation is sadly absent. It is absent. So, you know, he, he, uh, he looked, but he, he said what, what he found was that that not only was reconciliation absent from a lot of you know the divorces but he said the very idea of reconciliation being brought up to divorcees 
was taken in such a negative way. He said that it was just impossible. It was there was venomous. That the people that were talked to, and of even the thought of reconciling. Now, with all that in mind, um, why do you think? Let, let me just let me put this in a question. And you can raise your hand if you feel like you have the answer. Why do you think? That in our society, and I, I know I just gave you a list. We have broken homes, broken relationships, uh, all kinds of things in our world today. But why is it that, that people are having such a hard time reconciling? Go ahead. Nobody wants to admit they're wrong. Anybody else? And that's a good answer. I mean, I don't have a pat answer on this. Anybody else? Why is reconciliation so difficult? Why is it hard? Go ahead. That are hurt, they're hurt to the point where that they can't reconcile. Go ahead, you had your hand in. They find it easier just to move on. Go ahead. That I'm sorry. Okay. Do you think, though, that, that too... Now, this is just, again, all these answers are good. I don't have any pat answer on this. But do you think, too, that the problem with reconciliation between people is because we are selfish, such a selfish generation that, you, you know, some people have a hard time admitting that they're wrong. And I know people are hurt. But, but yet, you know, we're all so selfish, and, and it is hard to admit that you're wrong. And when you get two people that try to come together and reconcile, you know, somebody has to admit, and should be both of them, to admit that there was wrong on both parts. And let's, let's take that one step further. Could it be that you're also afraid that you're going to be turned down if you try to reconcile? Does anybody have a hard time being turned down? Is it just me? Am I the only person? <laughs> Does any? I mean, really, maybe there's a few good salesmen out there, but don't you have a hard time just someone saying, no, I don't want to talk to you about this. I don't want anything to do with you anymore. You know, you are anathema maranatha. Okay? So, you know, I, I don't want anything to do with you. And then you're standing there with your hat in your hand. Just a statement. And you don't know what to do next. How do you answer that? I mean, the first thing that you want to do is say, well, it wasn't a good idea anyway for me to even come and talk to you. You're a knucklehead, bonehead, and every other kind of head. And then what you've just done is made the schism even wider. So, yeah, I, I think there's, there's a lot of reasons for it. But, but the one thing, the one major exception to this phenomenon of broken modern human relationships is the reconciliation that's available through Jesus Christ. And no matter how broken, how broken may be that relationship between humanity and divinity, the entire focus of God's plan among humankind looked toward reconciliation. From the beginning through the ages, God's progressive program of revealing Himself to mankind pointed toward its ultimate culmination in Jesus Christ. God has always wanted reconciliation with mankind. It's always been His desire. Always. To wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. 
in every human relationship, folks, listen to me on this, we should strive to maintain harmony. And when relationships have soured or broken, we should strive to achieve genuine reconciliation. Now, however, whatever may be the state of our human relationship, we should embrace God's offer of reconciliation because that's for every person on the face of the world. It's not God's will that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. And friend, repentance is a step in reconciliation to God. It is the major step, first step, if you would, to reconciliation. You know, you, you stop and think at the time here, the apostles preached Jesus Christ who contrasted starkly with the Greek and the Roman gods popular at the time of the early church. You stop and think about what they were facing. They were, they were facing, when the apostles preached Jesus Christ, they were facing uh, capricious and malicious gods that they believed in. Roman and the Greek gods basically the same, they just changed their names. Heracles instead of Hercules, and so forth and so on. So, you know, they just changed their names. And, and, and they, these gods, you know, they could, you know, one time they were on your side, the next time they were throwing lightning bolts at you. You know, that's how they thought. And so this is what they were preaching. They were preaching Jesus Christ, the complete opposite of everything the Greek and the Romans believed when it came to deity. The complete opposite of this. And so you had Jesus, you know, that, that, that completely was different all the way around. At one point when God uh, healed a, a handicapped man for whom Paul and Barnabas had prayed, the people of Lystra misidentified the apostles as Jupiter and Mercury. They thought that Paul and Barnabas was Jupiter and Mercury. They'd done a miracle. And Paul and Barnabas quickly corrected them and urged the people to serve the living God in Acts 14, 12 through 15. Moreover, Paul preached Jesus to a crowd of philosophers in Athens, Excuse me, as recorded in Acts 17. Now, caught up in their idolatry, the Athenians even worshiped the unknown God. I, I, every time I look at that particular passage of Scripture, I, I look at a man, Paul, who understood how to deal with any situation. God, uh, this man was intelligent, you know, he was well versed, he, he, was, he was educated. But yet he still had, with all of that, he had the ability to look at a situation and turn it around for the good. He did not come to them and say, Why, you ignorant Athenians, what are you doing worshiping? i got an idol here to an unknown God. I mean, a lot of us would do something like that. We just go up and say, Why in the world you got an idol here to an unknown God? Instead, he identified the unknown God as Jesus Christ. Let me tell you who you're really worshiping here. You're worshiping Jesus Christ. You know what he saw? What he saw was beyond what they were doing. He saw what they were trying to achieve. They obviously weren't happy with their, their gods off Mount Olympus. So they had something else up there. I don't know who this other god is, but there's got to be something better than what we have, so we just put a, a, an idol up to the unknown god. So what he did was just identify him. This is your unknown god. And he had results as, a, as what he did. He was able to deal with that situation. Now, now, now think about this. God is always progressively trying to reveal himself. So we see from the very beginning... The relationship with God in the Garden of Eden involved privilege and responsibility for Adam and Eve. They were to dress and to keep the garden. That's what they were doing. At the end of the day, I mean, they had obviously some labor involved in the Garden of Eden. And at the end of the day, in the cool of the day, they walked with God. What a relationship that would have been. Every one of us would have enjoyed that. What a relationship. But sin separated them from God. And they were cast out. Yet God was not ready to dismiss them completely. 
I don't care who you are. I don't care how bad you have been. I don't care what you have done. I don't care how bad you assume what you did really was. God is never ready to dismiss you. Are you hearing me? He's never ready to dismiss you. He was not ready to dismiss Adam and Eve. He knew that there was something better. Of course, it was his plan from the beginning to give them something better. He wasn't ready to just, all right, you're no good anymore. I have nothing more to do with you. He wasn't ready for that, and he's not ready for that for any one of us. You know, they suffered the consequences of their sin, but God also provided a way for mankind to be brought back into relationship with Him. 2 Samuel 14, 14 is a scripture you don't see brought out a whole lot. Uh, I was just reading it recently, and I, I thought of it again with this particular lesson. And it expresses the idea of what I'm trying to say here, comparing it to water that has been spilled. I'm going to read it to you. In 2 Samuel 14, 14, it says, For we must needs die. Now, this is, this is what, how God sees this. He said, we know, I know, everybody dies. That's not over with. But in, in your flesh, you're going to die. And because we've never taken that step into death before, all of us have a certain amount of trepidation, fear, if you would, concerning death. But God is speaking through Samuel, saying it must, there, there's a must-needs die, and you are as water spilt on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Neither doth God respect any person... Yet doth he devise means that his banished be not expelled from him. Alright, so you're going to die. And, and like water to spill that, you can't, you can't get, you're not going to be able to gather it all up again and relive in the kind of life that you're living now. That's what he's saying. But God doesn't desire for you to be banished. Now the NIV translates that last phrase of 2 Samuel 14, 14. He said he devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. So God's plan of restoring mankind's relationship with him and bringing about reconciliation is the main theme of the Bible. God doesn't want us to die and go to hell. It's that simple. That's what that's saying. I don't, you're going to die. And I don't want you banished. I don't want you to be out of relationship with me. I want you to come to heaven. I want you to be with me. So I'm going to offer a means. Do you know, do you ever, ever really think, do any of you ever put it in your mind, it's hard for me to, to do this, the amount of effort in, in terms of, of humanity and the way I'm thinking as me, the amount of effort that was put forth in reconciling us back to God from the beginning. I mean, a whole Old Testament, the New Testament up to Jesus Christ was reconciliation. Because to be lost, he doesn't want one person in this place to be lost. So it says, you know, uh, Graham Scroggie called the uh, called it the unfolding drama of redemption, and he says usually God does not instantly cut off offenders, but gives them space to repent. So regardless of who you are and what your offense may be, God always gives you a space of repentance. So God progressively revealed His ultimate purpose of reconciling mankind to Himself, which he, he wrought through the incarnation by the birth and the death of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 9 and 6, The child that was born at Bethlehem was the mighty God, the everlasting Father, according to Isaiah 9 and 6. His death bought and brought about reconciliation, but makes it possible for us to live in a relationship with Him. It makes it possible. 
because of what he did. God became a man. I, I, I you know, I know maybe some of you have still. I, I, it's it's like it's as fresh to me today as what it was over 30 years ago when it all came up, it came together that God became a man. You know, I, I know that uh, Trinitarians all will agree that God became a man, but they still try to make him just one more in a and a group of three. Okay, I understand that they do that, but that they'll tell you one, but they can't understand it. The thing is that most of us, all of us, I hope, in here understands that the mighty God, not a second person, not a third person, not a first person, the mighty God became a man, Jesus Christ, and He did it because He wants us to walk beside Him and to be reconciled to Him. Isn't that great? Give Him a hand clap. Praise God. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, unto themselves rather, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Second Corinthians five fifteen. Out of the reconciliation comes relationship. Uh, let's let's put a little Robertson revelation on this. I, I've often wondered, you know, because you see some people sometimes that can that can. Uh, you know, we talk about revelation. You know, we talk about understanding more of God. Uh, you know, and I, I preached on that last, I think it was last Sunday. And, and uh, I've often seen some people never seem to get beyond a certain level of, of relationship and revelation because relationship breeds revelation. So then relationship will allow you to understand God more, thus have a higher understanding of God, be able to walk in a better level of God than you ever have before. Something that God has for every one of us. But it seems like some people never, ever quite get there. So then if reconciliation comes first, then relationship comes next, then revelation comes after that, then I'm wondering if some people never truly in their heart feel like they're completely reconciled with God. Reconciliation comes through repentance. Jesus named baptism, infilling the Holy Ghost. That's salvation. We're reconciled. God gives us a way back through the death, burial, and resurrection, and we identify with it through repentance, baptism, and filling of the Holy Ghost. But yet, we still see people that get all of this, and they seem to live beyond, be below what they need to live. So their, their relationship is never quite there. I see it. I see it in people's eyes. I see it in the way you act. I see it in the way people walk, talk. You see it. There's no joy. There's no joy in some people. Uh, coming to church, living for God, seems to be a drudgery to some. And, and it's not that they, you know, they do it out of, this is essential, I've got to do this to make it to heaven, but they don't enjoy it. And so... I've always, I, I believe that reconciliation to God is not complete. It's not that God doesn't see it that way. It's you don't see it that way. You don't feel like you're right because of some particular, we're going to get to that in a minute, I hope, because of some particular sin in your life that you can't overcome. And so then that sin stops the reconciliation progress, if you would, from completely to be complete. Thus, then you don't have right relationship. Thus, you never have revelation. Is that all right? All right, let's move on. 
Now, God wants us to have relationship so that we can have the eternal destination, the heavenly realm. He wants us to live in the heavenly realm. But you're not going to do that unless you have relationship. So if you don't have relationship yet, then you need to work on your reconciliation. And that's all right up here in your mind. Okay? The, con- the compound names of, of Jehovah present a sequence of revelation of what God can do f- for and be to his people. Now, we've just got four of them. There are several of the compound names. Uh, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. That one is, oh, that was a good one. That one was the one with Abraham and Isaac. They were taking him up to Mount Moriah to offer him as a sacrifice. And when he got up there, Isaac said, here's a wood fire. He said, you know, where's the sacrifice? Of course, at that time, Abraham, uh, you know, he heard God, and God was wanting him to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. God never wants us to have human sacrifices. But he was checking the obedience of Abraham. And so, Abraham made a statement to Isaac. He said, God shall provide himself a sacrifice. At the same time, he was going up Moriah on one side. A ram was coming up the other side. God always has a ram coming up the other side when you're doing what you're supposed to on this side. Understand that? There always will be. Your answer is always coming up the other side of the mountain if you go up this side. It will always be that way. And so, you know, he comes up and then the ram and he, he offers the ram a sacrifice. And then the name was called here Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. So that was one of the ways of, of, of God revealing Himself. You know, God, the progressive revelation. Another one was uh, Jehovah said, Can you, the Lord, our righteousness, Jehovah Shema, the Lord is there, and Jehovah Shalom, the Lord, our peace. Now, all the compound names of God find their ultimate fulfillment in the name Jesus, which means Jehovah is our salvation. So everything that you see in the compound names of God in the Old Testament come together in the New Testament in the name of Jesus. Jehovah has become our salvation. So God become our Savior through Jesus Christ, offering Himself as a perfect sacrifice for our sin. Christ's death on the cross provided a way to heal the relationship between God and mankind. Uh, the, the, the focus verse of this lesson expresses a powerful truth that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself. Jesus, when He was on the cross, I, every time, I, you know, the cross is, is the focal point. Of course, the Gospels, if you read the Gospel, any casual uh, reading of the Gospels lets you know that the last week of Christ's death was a whole focus, uh, His time on earth, rather, up to His death. The last week up to His death was His entire focus. That was the whole focus. said he set his faces of flint towards Jerusalem. Nobody was going to stop him from being the sacrifice. So, so when he was on the cross, he was stretched between two thieves. And in reality, what you see here is as Jesus was on the cross, he was a bridge between two men. He was a bridge of mankind. He had one thief on one side who was railing against him. If you truly be the Son of God and take yourself off this cross, you had the other one that said, leave him alone. He's not, he don't deserve to be here, we do. So he bridged two men. That was symbolic of what he does for mankind. The reconciliation, a bridge for men. One of them, he said, today you're going to be with me in paradise. He, was the, he could do that because he was the high priest, according to the book of Hebrews, and he was also the Lamb of God. He offered the complete... Old Testament fulfillment of what it took to get a person in right relationship. That's why he could say that to that man. Because there was the high priest, there was the Lamb of God, everything they needed to make it to heaven. 
right there. So that's why he could say, but regardless, it shows you in the statement, it shows you in the, his posture, he was the bridge for mankind. And you know, I always think, every time I look at that, I think, you know, here you got both his hands stretched out to two men, worst of the worst. But yet his hands are stretched out towards them. The worst of the worst. I hate it when I see people come in here and say, I just can't be good enough. When I know what's the Scripture, and I know, I realize how the devil can put condemnation on you. I know how he can do that. But do you realize what he reached out to when he was on this world? Do you realize what he reached out to? To the worst of the worst. To the harlots, to the murders, to, to nothing, to nobodies, to people who... They weren't the high-class people. They were the fishermen. He reached out to those people. Don't ever think you're too, you're too bad to come to God. God wants to reconcile each and every one of us. Each and every one of us. Jesus is God, manifest in the flesh. 1 Timothy 3.16, the Word made flesh, John 1.14, the visible image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15, Hebrews 1.3, all the fullness of the Godhead resides bodily in Jesus, Colossians 2.9. It is amazing that the Creator Himself came to His creation to restore relationship. Only He could provide the sacrifice on the cross that would restore the relationship between God and humankind that had been broken by sin. Demonstrating the significance of his sacrifice, the veil of the temple was torn from the bottom to the top simply because God was allowing us to know through Jesus Christ that everybody would have access to God himself through the veil, which the Bible says was his flesh. When he, when he was, when they thrust that, that spear into his side, his flesh was rent, the veil was rent when he died. It was to simply say, everybody has access to God. Everybody. I don't care where you are. I don't care at the situation you're in. You may be out in a car at night crying over a bad situation. God is right there and you have access to see the thing. Oh, give me my hand clap. The incarnation, he had opened a door of the reconciliation between God and every man, according to John 17 and 4. And, and I said this earlier, even, even a, a minute cursory examination of the gospel reveals that the Passion Week was the focus of the, of the life of Jesus Christ. And, and, and that is so significant to each and every one of us. That's what he came for. It wasn't just for the stories. We love the stories. We love to see the healings. We love to see what he did, the lepers being cleansed. We see the, you know, him walking on the, on the water. We see the great miracles that he did. And we, we need to embrace all of that as a part of what we are. But on the other hand, the whole point of this is so he could die on the cross and be raised again so we can know that God came to, to reconcile us unto himself. That is the important thing. Jesus lived a, a sinless life and, and was therefore qualified to provide the required sacrifice for the sin, or for sin, rather. The shedding of innocent blood. And it was, only, it was the only means, the, sin, the, the shedding of innocent blood was the only means of providing reconciliation between a holy God and a sinful man. And almost all things, according to Hebrews 9.22, are by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood is no remission. First Peter 1, 1.18-20 said, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, 
who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in those last times, last times for you. Jesus did not come to destroy the law according to, uh, uh, toward the Scripture, but to fulfill it. And Leviticus 17.11 says, It is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. Blood sacrifice was a prominent part of the Jewish worship. The only way they could obtain atonement for their sins was through the blood. And, and however, the, the principle of innocent blood being shed to provide a, a covering for sin existed from the time that God threw an animal to make coats of skins all the way back to the book of Genesis. He slew two animals to make skins for the nakedness of Adam and Eve. He did it then. So blood had to be shed. I, I always tell this in a Bible study. I always get your attention. I said, I am not yet to see a raccoon come up and unzip his hide and give it to you. When I kill a raccoon, I skin him out. And very rarely do I not get blood on my hands. If you don't believe me, try skinning your arms. See if you can do that. Don't do that. I'm just joking. You will get blood on you. So, at that at the very beginning, we see the that that he uh, you know that there had to be a shedding of blood to clothe Adam and Eve through their transgression in the garden. Jesus' death on the cross provided a propitiation, which is an atonement, atoning for sin. Blood atoned for. Or made it okay, not making it okay, but uh, atonement is a, a form of saying, okay, this is covered. You're okay. Not okay that you did it, but you're okay because the blood covers it. And that's exactly what that was saying. So, uh, so, so if you look at this, he atoned for the whole world. So the phrase, God so loved the world, that he gave in John 3.16, reveals the depth of his love. God did not send someone else, but he himself came to pay the price for redemption. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and a living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. So the veil, that, that hid, the, the glory of God dwelt within the body of Jesus Christ. But it was the flesh that kept the presence of God from blinding us. You realize that, Jesus, that, that Moses, through the cleft of the rock, saw the hinder parts of the history of God, and his whole face radiated. So could you say of God? If you were able to stand if the fullness of God radiated somehow through the body of Jesus Christ, we would all have been blinded. But the flesh veiled it. We saw the actions of God. We saw the movements of God. We heard the words of God. But we could not see because of that and that flesh. The blood that was in there is what offered us a, a, an atonement for our sins. Folks, I, I don't know. You know, I, every time I say that, it's, it's a wonder. No matter what this world does and the direction this world goes, and they may say that, that Jesus was the equivalent of Muhammad and all the other things that, that are out there, and there's a lot of things out there. But there is none that has, it goes further back. Muhammad didn't exist until after Christianity was established, long after the, the day of Pentecost. Any other religions were the same way. Same way with the Buddhist. Same way. All of them just picked and chose the teachings of the, of the scrolls in the Old Testament, if you would. They picked and chose out of those, and some of them picked out of the, of the New Testament, and they made their own religion. But the one religion that exists and still will exist and will continue to do well is the one true God religion, which is in Christ Jesus. Give him a hand clap.
Through the incarnation, God was in Christ, which made it possible for every believer to be born again and to live a life in Christ. Baptism into, into Christ is available to all regardless of the gender or race. The church is one in Christ, in Galatians 3, 27, 28. In Christ, the power of sin and the flesh have lost their death-like grip, and we have received new life. Therefore, we are buried with Him by baptism into death, the like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father. Even so, we also should walk in the newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, we should also in the likeness of His resurrection. Reconciliation means overcoming estrangement and restoring unity. It makes friends again of those who were at one time enemies. The word reconciliation in various forms of the word are mentioned five times in the lesson text, making the word a prominent principle. You can see that in 2 Corinthians 5, again, 17 through 21. Romans 5 reveals the power and the purpose of reconciliation. There are four we were statements, okay, in Romans 5. And they summarize the changes that reconciliation produce in believers. Now these are, again, four we were statements. In Romans 5, verse 6, is first, we were without strength. Deuteronomy 6 and 5 exhorts us to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, and might. Jesus elaborated on this great commandment in Mark 12, 30, where he included loving the Lord with all of our mind, and all of our strength. However, this is the problem. Mankind lacked the strength to follow the command completely. It was impossible to keep the law due to the weakness of sinful flesh. The law cannot perfect anyone in Hebrews 7.19. And neither can works of righteousness in Titus 3.5. Even if people had the strength, there would still would be no way to find reconciliation except through Jesus Christ. That is the only way. The strengths of mankind often present a paradox, such as the case of Samson. Now, he had uncommon strength and enabled him to do great physical exploits. These are the paradox, and you start looking at strength. Yet his spiritual weakness brought his downfall. So, you know, regardless of how big and how strong you are, you can be weak as a kitten when it comes to spiritual strength. And yet you can take the littlest, smallest, you know, skinniest, runt of a guy, and he can have all kinds of spiritual strength. I mean, this guy sees angels, and he has all kinds of things. You've got this big, strong guy over here, and he, you know, he quakes when the devil comes around. Why? Because your physical strength doesn't do anything in the spiritual realm. You can look at Samson, and again, an idea, of, you know, you look at him. He lost the presence of God, then he lost his relationship with God, he lost his hair, his eyesight, and finally his freedom. So God eventually restored his strength and allowed him to take revenge on his enemies. But unfortunately, Samson died with his enemies instead of conquering them. We can say what we want. Yeah, he killed all these Philistines when he knocked down the arena more than he did through life. But the thing is, he died too. How many more could he have conquered had he lived? So sometimes we have to understand that spiritual strength is what matters. There's too many people with too much potential that go out into the world, lose their relationship with God, and all that they could have done in the kingdom of God is, is, you know, is nothing happens at all. Their whole life goes nowhere. You know, the, where the Scripture says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? 
Do you realize in the process of losing your own soul that you can cause a lot of other people to lose theirs? I guess it's one of the main things, and no matter how many battles I have to fight in every one of them, I, this, this particular thing right here, this is an interesting. Uh, if you would look at this and understand some things, a vine grew up around this, so it made it look so unique. Now, you would think while that thing was being choked that it would have killed it. But instead, it made it stronger. See, all that? That's stronger. You try to break that over, and you get one of it, just this. You might be able to break it, but with all this, you're not going to break it. But it caused great stress in order to build this particular muscle. And it's the same way with, with our spiritual strength. You know, we go and we pray the prayer of faith, if you would, and we ask God to use us, and God starts letting a vine wrap around us. And we feel the choking, and we feel the stress, and we feel the burden, and we feel all of this, and we wonder, you know, God, this is not exactly what I had in mind. I really don't care about this part of it, but when that thing finally, someone helps unwrap that vine, you're stronger than you've ever been. Because you've endured consistent and constant stress. The strength of God can help us live a successful spiritual life. It can shore up our weaknesses, multiply our strengths. But, but accessing divine strength depends on a person yielding his human weakness to Jesus Christ. Paul said, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members, servants to uncleanness and to iniquity, unto iniquity, even so now yield ye your members, servants to righteousness, unto holiness. Number two, Second, we, are, we were, we were statements, we were sinners, Romans 5.8. Instead of living for God, we live for the world. But flesh and the devil, are, and live for the, excuse me, for the world, the flesh and the devil. Our sins put Jesus on the cross. Isaiah 53 and 6 says, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. In Philippians 3, 4 through 6, Paul described himself as blameless according to the law. Indeed, if anyone could boast of moral strength and zeal for God, it was Paul. But when he came face to face with Jesus Christ, he found that outward performance fell far short of internal obedience. It's one thing to go through the acts of worship in a church where everybody can see you, but internal obedience is greater than that. The greatest and the most pure worship that you see in a church is when you've got a group of people that have internally been obedient and then they worship. There's a power there that cannot be, you know, it can be replaced. It can't even be truly defined when you begin to look at that kind of power that's achieved through that. <clears throat> so he goes on to talk about... Uh, he, he met Jesus and really had nothing about which to boast. And he counted every achievement and his adherence to every detail of law as loss so he could gain Christ. Now when he died to self, he became, Paul did, reconciled to Christ and placed his confidence in Him. And it, it comes to this. Paul had great confidence before the Holy Ghost. He had many years of ministry, and he wrote, he said, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I, they said, am chief. In 1 Timothy 1.15, he'd been forgiven, but he never forgot his misplaced confidence 
in himself that caused him to persecute the followers of the way. And his experience taught him that where sin abounds, grace will much more abound in Romans 5.20. He wrote, as, as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord in Romans 5.21. Sin had been aggressive and a cruel tyrant. And he had confidence in himself and in the law. And Paul, when he met Jesus, he realized the sin had been the true leader of his life. And he realized through this, at this point, I've been following the wrong direction all along. And, and he begins to, to look and realize that now I, I, I know the right way, but I'm not going to forget that at one time I had confidence in myself. You see, when you begin to get confident in yourself and thinking you have the answers, that's when you need to have a good long prayer meeting and be sure that you're listening to people of experience and elders around you to help guide you in the right way. Because, friend, let me tell you, even in a good long prayer meeting, I've seen some really good people have their mind made up and make some really bad mistakes. Listen to someone around you. When sin rules... It strips away a person's strength, their talent, their health, their soul, their, finally their life. And it leaves only the husk. Grace, on the other hand, does not take, it gives. It increases a person's strength, it labors alongside, helps him develop a new life in Christ and heals his body, soul, and spirit. Instead of taking a person's life, Jesus Christ gave his, and he grants life evermore to those who are reconciled to him. You see, the devil wants to take your life. Jesus already gave his life so we wouldn't have to. It's exactly what he did. The devil wants you to get out and do something stupid. Now, regardless of how benevolent and gracious as Jesus, you know, as benevolent and gracious Jesus Christ is, it is a spiritual fallacy. Spiritual fallacy it means a false statement, if you would, for a person to assume that he can continue to serve sin and expect God's grace to intervene on his behalf. Jesus will not allow a person to continue in sin and still expect the benefits of His grace. Instead, He extends grace to those who believe and turn from sin. The application of God's grace affects a powerful deliverance and change in the life of the sinner and creates a new person in Christ. You cannot say, I've got to sin a little bit every day. Yes, we have a tendency to do that. But I'm not going to excuse myself of doing that. You are in a bad shape when you get to the point where you no longer see sin as sin. When you say, oh, well, grace will cover me, then you will, you will, you will totally begin to, to creep back into complete sin. It will no longer be, God, I made a mistake, forgive me, and, and, and you know, telling God about what you've done wrong and repenting of your sin. Before long, you'll just forget it altogether. Well, what difference does it make? Grace covers it. When you do that, you're in trouble. You should be able to overcome. And Paul, Paul, you know, he understood what battle we have to fight. You know, when I go to do good, evil is present with me. And he said, the things that I would do are those things I do not. Things I don't want to do, I do. He understood. How do I overcome that? How do I overcome that secret sin? David talked about his secret sin. How do I overcome it? How, I mean, the, the, I can give you the answer. But the problem is, is that most of us want somehow for me to come in and switch a little button on you that makes it work. You yield 
your sin to Jesus Christ. You yield it to Him. You don't just repent. You give it to Him. Don't you, you don't have to wave your hand. I, I'm going to hit you when you can just blink your eyes. Don't you get tired of doing the same thing over and over again and know that you'd like to be overcome this? Don't you? I mean, really. I really want to overcome this. And you just get down and you, you grit real hard and you grit your teeth and you strain all your muscles and, and when that, that, that temptation comes along, you know, it kind of creeps in. It's right in front of you. And you want to do it again. And you try before long all that muscle flexion you do doesn't do a lick of good. And you do it anyway. At the point when you repent is when you begin to yield. Uh, now, follow me. It's not a matter of God forgive me. Try this. Try this. God forgive, God forgive me. I know I shouldn't have done this. Help me to overcome this. And I give you this sin. I yield myself to you and this sin to you. Try that. You'll quit gritting your teeth and you'll quit flexing your muscles. And before long, the thing will just disappear and you don't know where it went. I promise you. You yield yourself. Yield yourself. And I don't care how long you've served God, you can creep right back into doing something stupid. You understand that? You can creep right back into it. You know, a guy one time, at the, he was a pastor, it's been years ago, and he made a statement, and it was a lady in his church that had uh, been there for years. And he said, uh, she came up to be prayed for, and, I mean, she had been in church the biggest part of her life. And when he prayed for her, he saw her with a cigarette in her mouth. And he just, you know, he didn't bring it out in front of the whole congregation, but he spoke to her and she said, yes. She said, I started smoking. She said, I smoked since I was 19 years old. And I picked it up the other day. She said, I, I just picked it up. And he prayed for her. And, you know, and she had to yield. She didn't really have the desire for it. She just was at a weak time for whatever reason. She said she didn't have a clue why. But she just picked it up. And she began to do it. Do you understand what I'm saying? I don't care how smart you are, how many scriptures that you can quote, whatever it may be that you can do. You hear me? You can still pick up and do something that you never thought you were capable of doing. So what do you do? I yield myself. This is what Paul was saying. He said, I die daily. He said, I yield my members as members of righteousness. I yield myself. So I don't repent, just repent. I repent, then I say, I yield this particular. I tell you what, folks, yielding your members and members of righteousness is a good thing when you put on the armor of God to get up and yield every part of your body to God as well. Because it's that that gets you in trouble, especially here. Some of you geniuses out there, your genius brain will get you in more trouble than you ever thought. I've seen that Stephanie was here, Trina, I said that. <laughs> She's a genius. She can't deer hunt, though. Hallelujah. <clears throat> I can head throw that in there. This is a redneck church. You might as well understand that. You know, this is right this way. It's a redneck church. Redneck's not a bad word, by the way. It just explains Owen County. Okay, moving on. <laughs> Third, we were, we were statements, we were enemies. The carnal mind. The carnal mind views the things of God as foolishness and rejects them. 
Paul confronted Elimus the sorcerer for reducing the things to God to mere trickery. Now, this is the way Elimus saw this. The sorcerer wanted to buy the power to copy the tricks he thought were tricks performed by Barnabas and Paul so he could reap monetary gain from putting on a show. Paul rebuked Elimus for his attitude and said, O full of subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? In Acts 13 and 10. Paul wrote to the church in Philippi to warn them not to follow enemies of the cross of Christ. Philippians 3, 18 and 19. These enemies, instead of disciplining and denying and crucifying self and flesh, indulged and pampered themselves. The more you pamper flesh, the more apt you are to sin. It's like anything. The more you eat, the fatter you get. The more junk you put in, the more junk you get out. That's why that the disciplines are so necessary. Why prayer, fasting, prayer, you know, praise, all of these disciplines that that you know that that we need to do. And I've got a great book on the disciplines um, that 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 we need to to perform because what we're doing is we're no longer pampering the flesh. Pampered flesh will always go the way of pampered flesh. It's just that simple. And so the more we deny, the better we will be spiritually. It's just a, it's just a fact. That's the way it works. So, so we have to, a person's carnal flesh and mind will never know, understand, or receive the things of God until he transitions to the spiritual realm through repentance and reconciliation. And thankfully, Jesus has provided the answer to this impasse. He made a, a way to discard all the negatives of our past, crucify the carnal man, and bury him. This reconciliation to God opened the door to a new life with him. The Greek word, excuse me, the Greek word for enemies denotes hate or hostility. However, in Romans 5.8 confirms that this hostility did not flow from God, but from us. God commendeth his love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Apostle Paul never used the word dialeso. That's the Greek word translated reconciled in Matthew 5.24. In fact, Matthew 5.22 and 24 is the only place in the New Testament where dialeso is used. The passage records Jesus' instruction on how one believer can be reconciled to another believer. Thus, dialeso denotes a mutual concession that cancels any mutual hostility. Okay? He never used that word. That's the only place that word's used. So it was mutual hostility. In other words, I don't like him, he doesn't like me. And Jesus was telling us, dialeso, the Greek word, that we have to somehow get together and, and concede. Each other has to concede, and we have mutual hostility and get over it and, and become friends again, become reconciled. But when it comes to God, that word's not used. Instead of using dialeso to describe the reconciliation between God and mankind, Paul always used kataleso. Now this word for reconciliation implies God's attitude toward the sinner has never been one of hostility. We, can't, we don't have to worry about God being hostile to us. Our reconciliation to Him doesn't come from Him. It comes from us. He never did hate us. He always has loved us. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. So He's always loved mankind. It is up to mankind through repentance to reconcile unto God. So we don't stand up here and think, God doesn't like me because He didn't do this. God always has loved us. God loved us from the beginning before you were ever born on this world. God loved us. 
And so it's not a matter of Him reconciling with us. It's us reconciling with Him. That's the whole term. In fact, there's no, no, the notion of God and mankind making up does not exist in Scripture. It's rather a loving God invites a sinful person to change his attitude and be reconciled to him through Jesus Christ. Thus God has never reconciled to man. Man must be reconciled to God. So we, we have to thank God over and over again for slaying this enmity or warfare between God and man by his death on the cross. God did not wait passively for sinners to come to him and ask for reconciliation long ago. He abolished the enmity and extended to mankind the possibility of reconciliation. That's the whole purpose of God and has been the plan throughout all eternity. It's always been that plan. Number four, final one, we were reconciled through his death. To those who are reconciled, salvation introduces a powerful life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The apostles preached the resurrection of Christ not to create a sensation, as the Lemus thought, but to proclaim a great and sure salvation. Paul said, much more, we are justified by the blood of Christ and reconciled by salvation through his life. The use of the phrase, much more, is seen in Romans 5, 9, and 10, saved by his life. In Romans 5.17, they were received abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. In Romans 5.20, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ. Our Lord, the whole purpose and everything is so that we can have eternal life. Eternal life. Folks, don't ever forget, no matter what we do, our joy should, should emanate from the fact that we are saved and we're going to be in heaven one day. That should be the source of all joy, regardless of what's going on, regardless of what's constricting us, regardless of how the devil may be fighting you. My joy comes from the fact that one day me and my family are going to go to heaven. That McCormick's Creek Church is going to go to heaven. That's where our joy should emanate. Give him a hand clap. Give him a hand clap. Praise God. <clears throat> Jesus accomplished the possibility of reconciliation for us when he fulfilled the role of mediator between God and man. Only Jesus Christ could accomplish this because he embodied the nature and all the attributes of God. But also, he participated in the nature of humanity. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us, so we knew the righteousness could be made righteous in him. In our stead, Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God against the sins of the world. There is one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus in 1 Timothy 2.5. When Jesus died for us, he became, as the writer of Hebrews said, our faithful high priest and makes reconciliation for the sins of the people. So he became our mediator. Uh, and that's mediator, that, that, that one that stands between us and a wrathful God. That's what Jesus did. Jesus was God, incarnate, in the flesh. And the attributes that dwelt with His name was all the attributes of God, the important attributes, love, mercy, kindness, long-suffering. All those things dwelt within that body. And because of that, because God became that, He stood be between us as Jesus Christ, as the mediator. He speaks for us. What He did and what He felt, everything He endured, stood between us. The flesh stood between us and a wrathful God. Now again, we ought to be thankful every day. Paul declared this. He said, you're bought with a price. That price was not paid with silver and gold, but with blood. We are reconciled to him through the death of his son, Romans 5.10, Colossians 1.19. And the cross put hostility to death. The cross put hostility to death. It really did. If everybody could look to the cross and understand the power of the cross, 
and see the bridge that was there, there wouldn't be any hostile problems. Not at all. All of us would love one another and care for one another the way we should. Stand with me if you would. Bridge of the Cross. Well, I get Brother Hill to preach that one of these days. I just give him ideas so he can preach on them. I'm too old to preach anymore. Isn't that right, Bob? <laughs> Don't agree with me. Don't you dare agree with me, Bob. <laughs> oh, let's come early to pray. We're going to have some great prayer meetings. Thank you, folks, so much for the prayer. Uh, continue continue to pray for Palau and this uh, over the, on the Pacific, they call it a typhoon, and in the Atlantic, they call it a hurricane. It's all the same thing. It's a lot of wind, and uh, so let's let's pray for for Helga and that all this will work out. Uh, some of you, you know, we try to send money, and I want to let everybody know that we have we had just sent some money over there. We try to every year send her something. I, I pretty much, unless things have changed uh, that I don't know about, we're pretty much all the support she has. Uh, she doesn't even have any missionary support over there at all. It's sad, but she's not able to, to leave the church in order to come to the States and money-wise and all to be able to generate any support. And uh, thank God we're able to do what we do. And, and, you know, God will bless us abundantly for all that. And he always always has. Let's also remember we're still trying to build a building. Give. I know it's Christmas time. Don't push too much because all of you but uh, want to, you know, you got to buy gifts. you got things to do. And, becomes a financial burden sometimes, but uh, just keep in mind that we're still trying to raise money. God gives you a million dollars. I'm still pacing around. I moved I moved my million-dollar circle to my office. I picked it up right there. I left it there, but I didn't see anybody using it anymore, so I took it back to my office now. I just do it myself. I just walk circles around it. Now, I'll bring it back if anybody tells me they'll walk around it here, but you have to tell me that you'll do that, and if I don't see it done, then I'll take it back with me. And you don't think you, you don't understand my imagination. I don't. I see these things. I really do, and I see this happening. And even if I don't see a million dollars personally, this church is going to see a million dollars. Right there, going to see it. See it, because that's the way it's supposed to be. Let's raise our hands, love the Lord right now. Father, we thank you for your blessings, your goodness, your mercy, and we ask God here that you would bless, keep each and every one. Lord, let them come tonight, willing to worship and love you, and to appreciate all that you are and that you do. I ask now in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you. You're dismissed.